studies. So I've been, um, I'm 43 now, I've been in academic theology now for 20 years. And, um, and I, I enjoy theology, and I enjoy, I, I, I'll explain to you what I do in a bit, but I got tired of, how do I put this? Basically, theology is wasted on people like Jean-Luc. Because, because, let me very quickly say, it's wasted on Andy, it's wasted on, it's not wasted on them, but we think, don't we, that theology is the thing you do if you're going to go get a Christian job at the end of it. So we think theology is only for people who are training to become vicars or some sort of minister. Like, that's the idea that we all have. As normal Christians, we think, well, I wouldn't do theology because I'm not called to be a vicar. So why would I do theology? And I love teaching theology, but like I said, I got a bit tired of just teaching Andy and Jean-Luc. Because those of us who work in theology, including Andy and Jean-Luc, we know that the local church invented theology, and the best theology happens when it's in the local church. And theologians who become distant from their local church become rotten and horrible. And local churches that don't have theology become weird or flat. And so, basically, long story short, I quit my job as an academic theologian because I thought, I love theology, but I'm, I want to find a way to bring theology back into churches. And it's not enough to just keep expecting people to come to me all the time. So I quit my job, and I'm a traveling theologian, which is how Jean-Luc found out about me. He got in touch. And he said, would you like to come and visit St. Barnabas? And I said, yes, that's what I do. That's why I quit my job, so that I could come here. And I travel around, and it's called tent theology. I set up a little tent, metaphorical. And the idea is that we just... I, I, we, we pitch a tent in the church for a while. And so when Andy um, said, do you want to come and do this evening on the Old Testament? I said, well, yeah, but I don't want to just do one evening because I like to get to know people better. And I don't like just the coming in and being a special speaker and then going away. So I'm coming back in a couple weeks' time. And the idea is that this, what we're doing tonight is not just a one-off. Like we're here, we have a bit of space and time um, we're going to talk about stuff in a very relaxed sort of way, hopefully even quite fun. And then in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to keep doing it. And in fact, I'm going to bring some friends with me. So I am not an Old Testament scholar. I'll explain to you what I do in a bit. But I'm bringing with me in a couple of weeks' time two, um, they are Old Testament, so they're spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christians who are also happen to be professors of Old Testament. And I just thought, between the three of us, we could probably knock out a pretty good couple of sessions with you guys. So what I do, what I do is I'm a, I'm a political theologian, which means that I look at the way that Christians have related to their states and nations and countries over the years. And I started life by looking at kind of modern politics and how that relates. But as I kept doing my work, I started to do church history because you're like, well, how did the earlier Christians relate to their states and their nations and that kind of thing? And as you do church history, you keep going back. And eventually you get to the New Testament. Because you're doing church history and you say, well, how did the very first Christians relate to their states and their nations? How did they think about the, the politics or the, the social outworking of their Christianity? And in the New Testament, you discover all sorts of interesting things like Jesus as king and the kingdom of God. And we are a citizen of a new nation. And, 
you know, you lay down, don't fight your enemies, don't kill your enemies. And, you know, the political aspects of the New Testament are really strong, actually. And there's a whole lot of politics running throughout the New Testament that we miss all the time. So every time Jesus made a statement about the temple, every time he talked about Rome, or every time he healed a Roman soldier, or healed an elite member of society, and every time he paid attention to a lowly member of society or allowed a prostitute to wash his feet, he was actually making a political statement about how he thought it worked itself out to be a child of God or a member of the kingdom of God. And all that language is Old Testament language as well. So a lot of the things when you're doing New Testament studies really what you're doing is you are, the, the, the New Testament experience was the earliest people who knew Jesus or who knew the people who knew Jesus trying to figure out what, hap what happened to them. So Jesus happened to these people and they were trying to figure out how do we now explain this? How do we talk about it? And what you'll find is that the, the, the well that they drew from, the the bank of ideas that they withdrew from were from the Hebrew scriptures and it was the kind of king, king language and nation language and also old, what we would call the Old Testament language. The early church, when they talked about their scriptures, they didn't mean the New Testament. I mean, did you, do you know that the, the early church was in existence for about a hundred years before they had what we would call the New Testament. So, you know, a hundred years of Christians worshiping and they did not all have the same set of New Testament documents that we have today. It is totally possible for at least a hundred years to be a Christian without the New Testament in, in its full glory. It was not possible without the Old Testament. The Old Testament the book of Hebrew scriptures and the collections were the Christian scriptures. And it was in those scriptures that they found ways to describe and explain and imagine what it felt like to be around Jesus. Is this making sense? So, so I, I'm coming to you not as an Old Testament scholar. I don't read Hebrew. And I'm not going to pretend to that, which is partly why I'm bringing some friends with me next week. But what I want to do is give some framework for how did the New Testament imagination help us read the Old Testament? What's going on? What's our relationship as Christians? How do, as Christ followers, how does, that, how does that change and what's happening when, when we read the Old Testament? So the idea is that we're setting up a kind of a framework. The first thing I want us to do right now is do we have those pieces of paper? Because we're going to hand out little pieces of paper to everybody and this is a really good time, just take five minutes and write out your questions about the Old Testament. Any question you have, or at least the burning ones, right? Any burning questions you have, because it's good to capture them and have them written down. And after we've done that for, for a few minutes, I'm then gonna ask anybody who wants to, to shout out their questions and we're gonna put them up on the whiteboard and we're gonna collect them, okay? So you don't have to speak your question out loud if you don't want to, but if you do, it'll go up at the front and it will form 
what we talk about for the next two sessions. So I think if I gave you three minutes, that would be one minute per question, and then you'd have three questions on your card, which is pretty good. Um, just worth saying, some people sent in questions through the website. Oh, okay. Um, so we've got those questions, but it would still be helpful for us now if you could write them out, even if you've already put them. Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> we've, we've collected them, so we can feed them in next, oh, next week. Great. But, or next time, in two weeks' time. But um, for tonight's exercise, it would be helpful just to, to rephrase them again. Okay. I didn't know that. All right. Hmm. And this one works too. Oh, it's for, for getting people's questions. Yeah, that's a very good idea. Okay. So keep those pieces of paper. And remember that, like, you know, we're going to, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm not promising that absolutely every question is going to be absolutely answered, but I'll be honest, it's, it's a real ambition of mine. <laughs> I would really like everybody to have left today and in two weeks' time, having thought, yeah, I've been heard, or something that I worried about has been addressed. I would really like that to happen, right? So keep these pieces of paper Pay attention to it. I mean, maybe, maybe something that we say in the next two weeks will change you. Even if you didn't ask it out loud, it will start to, to, to coalesce or make sense, right? So let's, let's have a few up on the board. Oh, my, my beautiful assistant left. Here's another beautiful assistant. Let's just call some out. Probably, almost without question, if you shout out a, a, a question, it will probably be somebody else's in the room. You don't know this. When I teach and I look and somebody asks a question and I can see everybody else nodding, right? So you might ask a question thinking you're the only one. You're not the only one. So throw out some questions and let's see if we can get something up on the board. Do I have to stand up? No, no, I don't. no, no. Why did um, God choose the nation of Israel right. and not another nation? Why choose Israel? Great. My, my writing is very messy, I'm sorry, but it's kind of more for my benefit than yours. Mine's a little bit long. No, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. Do you want me to read it? Uh, no, Leviticus 25, what is it about? It's about slavery. Slavery, okay, yeah. And My question is, I know God and I love God. Yeah. How do you explain, how does, how do, how do, as a believer, how do you explain to unchurched or people who don't know God? Yeah how he can love us all. Yeah. Coming from this, this passage, it really sits uncomfortable with me. Yep, how to explain... Uh, God's love, yeah. Love God and, and the slavery. Where, where these, these are rules where God is telling people this is how you treat your slaves and all this kind of, yeah. And it's yeah. slavery in foreign nation, not in Israel, you know, yeah. Great. Okay, very good. I'm sure nobody else has any problems at all with the slavery stuff in the Old Testament, so, yeah. The number of years um, prophets lived 
900 years, 800 years, and all those years, are they counted the same number of years as we count it nowadays? Good. So we've got, um, does the act of Jesus' sacrifice apply both to the past, present, and future? Question. And did it apply to the generation of the Old Testament? So that's a, re that's a great question. It's like, what about the people that didn't know Jesus? Are they, if it's only by Jesus that you're saved, what about all the people who never met him? Yeah. Does the sacrifice apply to the generations in the Old Testament. Yeah, very good. In uh, Genesis 12, Abraham goes down to Egypt because of famine, and he tells his, sister, he tells his wife to say he, she is his sister yeah. and uh, gets into uh, trouble for it. Yeah. In Genesis 26, exactly a mirror pattern is repeated, and he, the main subjects are changed with Isaac and uh, Abimelech. Yeah. Um, I don't believe they both happened. I think that uh, good stories being passed down from hand to mouth got associated with two different patriarchs. Comment? Yeah. Right. Um, this is perhaps a little bit more general, um, but the Old Testament doesn't really talk about hell. I mean, I know it talks about the concept of Sheol, but why doesn't the Old Testament talk about hell when it's quite prevalent in the New Testament? Okay. Um, Exodus 33, yeah. Moses in the tent of meeting talks to God face to face as if he was talking to a friend. Yeah. And then later he asks God if he could see him see his face when God was when Moses was talking to God who or what was he was he talking to how was he talking yeah. to him uh, face to face or and then that, in that story he's like I want to see you God and God says you can't see my face I'll show you my back right so yeah face to face or so your question was who was he looking at or just yeah okay yeah. hello hello it's one question, but yeah. it's split into four questions, if that even makes sense. So no, that's right. We've got, page for mine. we've got enough space. I'll make it work. So the first one, but it's all really one, one theme. Yeah. As Christ followers, what holy days are we supposed to commemorate and okay. or celebrate? Um, when and what is the right way the scripture in instructs us to observe our Lord and Saviour's death. Okay. Does observing Passover have anything to do, does observing the Lord's Passover, because I'm aware that there's the Jews' Passover, yeah. does observing the Lord's Passover have anything to do with observing Jesus Christ's death? And one more question, which is all in the same theme, is celebrating Easter and other holiday traditions 
marked in our standard calendar, sinful. And do you mean by that last one, the idea that, that they came from, from pagan, like those pagan celebrations that the Christians took over? Or do you mean the idea that celebrating yeah, because, any holy day, is that sinful? Well, because my understanding is that certain things like Easter, yeah. Christmas, and yeah. other things yeah. are traditions that yeah. have been merged yeah. with Christian beliefs yeah. because of the Roman Empire exactly. who were, yeah. at the time, yeah. wanting to do their thing. Yeah. My understanding is, whether it's true or not, but yeah. my understanding of what I've read so far is that they kind of projected their policies yeah. and merged Christianity with their pagan traditions. So if, and you know, let's say that that actually, let's say you're right and that's true. And then the question, the really good question is, so should Christians even... Should we participate in that? Is that like participating in idol worship or what, you know, what's going on? That's really good questions. Uh, look, wait, I've, let, let's keep, let's start. I mean, these are great questions. I know you could keep going, but, um, but let's start. And we'll do this again. We're going to keep doing this. And also, let's keep talking. Like, we have an hour. So um, do ask questions. Do keep talking. I'm going to... Okay, I've never done this before, right? So this is fun for me, this is really fun. I just, first of all, let me just point out, there's like, I don't even know, some of these questions, if you talk about Israel, um, Abraham, like did it happen, right? There are some pretty big red buttons that one could accidentally step on, okay? So just so you know, I'm not out to try and destroy anybody's faith or be, you know, and you might disagree that there'll be people in the room that disagree with each other. Our job is not to all agree. Our job is to be able to hold the other person's hand and look them in the eye and say, I totally disagree with you and I love you like a brother. <laughs> you know, I refuse to break relationship with you in the name of Christ, right? So I don't know what your lines are. I don't know what Andy says about some of these things. Like I'm not, I'm not laying down the law, but what I do want to do is maybe present Lots of Christians think this or this, or there's different ways of thinking about it. I mean, your question about holidays, holidays is just an absolutely perfect example of this. There is no right answer. There's lots of Christians who have really good reasons for not celebrating Easter, just like ones who do. Um, and, and the job is not to say, all Christians everywhere should always do this. It's, this is why some Christians do. And this is why others don't. Here's what's at stake. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, the, literally, the scripture doesn't talk about Easter or Christmas. So, um, so then, a lot of what we're going to do. I mean, issues of slavery is an interesting one as well. Often, what you're doing is you're trying to extrapolate principles. So you're like, oh, our scriptures don't mention the Roman holiday of Astarte. And now Christians are sort of adding a Christian meaning to this pagan festival. So now what do we do? So then the earliest Christians had to go, well, what can we get out of our scriptures that helps us navigate these issues that we're facing, right? So that's what you end up doing. And you, a really good example, I'm, I'm not really talking about Old Testament at the moment, but a good example is 
the, the food sacrifice to idols issue, which was ripping the earliest church apart in the New Testament. And, um, you know, like the Christians are now living with pagans and they're in the marketplace and they know, they know for sure that idolatry was involved in these food. That was not the issue. They absolutely know that the food was been sacrificed to idols in the marketplace. And now they're being asked to, to share a table fellowship with other people, with pagans. Pretty similar to being asked to come and you have a Christmas feast, you know, and you know that Christmas didn't originally start as a Christian holiday or something. And then the earliest Christians were like, some of them said, no, uh, I cannot participate in that. My conscience is being, is hurt. And the apostle Paul is, is trying to write about how to deal with this. And he's like, look, the stronger brothers think their, their faith thinks Jesus is Lord of all. That means he's even Lord of pagan holidays and pagan meat. So we can eat that without fear. And Paul even identifies himself. He says, that's what I'm like. I think Jesus is Lord of all, so we can do this. But there are people in our midst who don't think that. So then you think, well, what did, what did Paul do? Did he use his great wealth of intellect and Bible knowledge and scripture knowledge how did he use his scripture knowledge? Do you remember what his solution was for the stronger and the weaker brother? Do you remember? It's in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. Do you remember what his solution was? If someone doesn't believe it's yep. right to eat it, let him carry on and you do what you think's right and he does what he thinks right. Well, even more than that, he's, he says to the stronger brother, he, so Paul says... I think I'm right. I think your faith should allow you to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, but I want you to submit to the weaker brother so that you then don't hurt his conscience, right? It's a really interesting argument because Paul isn't saying, getting out the double-barreled shotgun and going, you, he said the weaker brother is wrong. I think they got it wrong. But instead of blasting them with all his knowledge, he says, okay, stronger brother, Submit to the wrong person because we don't want to hurt them in the name of Christ. Because Jesus, and then he's drawing from, well, Jesus laid down his life for others. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you, know, and you realize, oh, it's not that Jesus or the Old Testament or any scripture said don't eat food sacrificed to idols. They couldn't use the scriptures to give them a really clear knowledge of that but what he did is he used his knowledge of the way Jesus acted to help determine well, how do we deal with some of these issues when they come up which is why I think what I want to do we're going to come back to this for sure but what I want to do right now is because we're not Godians we're Christians okay we're just going to remind ourselves right now of everything that we can remember about Jesus this is going to help frame the rest of our talk Go on. What do you remember about Jesus? Just shout it out. No, we don't need a microphone. Just shout out stuff and I'll write it up. Okay, he said, I am the truth. What else can we remember? Anything, like who did he talk to? What miracles did he do? Let's just remember what we can. Born of a virgin. Yeah. Fully God. Fully man. He was a king. What else? He was a teacher. Now, very good. How did he teach? With? 
Actions? Absolutely right. Parable, somebody said. He healed the sick. All right, that's good. Drill down. What sick? Come on. Who did he, which sick people? A, a leper? Okay, blind. Paralyzed. Deaf. He was an example and he told people to, go to, to, to imitate him. Can you remember a specific thing that he, he did that he asked us to follow him? Washing feet. He provoked, yes, and where, when? Let's remind ourselves. At the temple, he, he, he threw a temple tantrum? Yeah, what else did he provoke? During meals. Uh, why was the meals so provoking, Jean-Luc? So purity laws, why were purity laws? This is, I'm getting here, this is relevant to one of our questions. Why was it a big, what was happening with purity laws with meals? Yeah, and why were you impure? What, what about a meal would make you impure? If the people you ate with, and what kind of people were they? Right? So if you ate with the wrong kind of people, it was offensive and made you impure, and the wrong kind of people were largely foreigners, right? Um, Why was a tax collector so hated? A collaborator. See, now we're right into politics. Tax collectors were Jewish people set up by Rome to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. Like, they, they were race traitors, right? And Jesus, Jesus had a tax collector and a zealot on his team. Do you know who the, what the zealots were? A zealot was a type of freedom fighter. Think Braveheart. Zealots were, were Jews who, who violently opposed Rome, but they didn't actually oppose, they weren't strong enough to oppose Rome. They killed Jews seen to collaborate with Rome because they were the easy targets. So a zealot killed tax collectors, and Jesus had a zealot and a tax collector on his team. You see the kind of politics here of, of Jesus, right? Okay, who else have we got? Uh, how, what kind of people? Let's think about other kind of people that are associated with Jesus. Yeah, and absolutely which, let's go, they're very important, which women? Okay, so there was a prostitute. Who else? Oh, yeah, Judas, yeah. But in terms of women, I was trying to think about women, but foreign women, so there were Samaritans, um, Syrio-Phoenicians, yep. Um, the woman bleeding for 12 years, yeah. Um, the 12-year-old girl, the Samaritan woman at the well, the well woman, amazing. Um, oh, some good ones here, what was this? Mary Magdalene, yeah. So we got, well, there's lots of Marys. Mary Mags, Mary Mum, um, lots of Marys, yeah. Um, 
Come on, a little bit more here. What, uh, what kind of things did Jesus say? We, we had, he's a teacher. What kind of things did he teach? He, he said all sorts of things. Now this is also going to have some relevance. Sabbath is going to have some relevance to talking about what festivals should we be part of and, and how and why. So what else did he say? What other things did he teach? The vine. Yeah. I am. Oh boy, see there's... He taught, what did he teach about money? Giving taxes to Caesar. Yeah. And he taught us how to pray. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, which is very important. So, um, uh, heaven as on earth. What did he mostly... All right. Jesus talked about the church twice. In the, he mentions the church by name twice. He talks about... The, somebody brought up hell. He talks about... He doesn't use the word hell either, but he talks about some kind of eternal punishment about eight times. What is the thing that he talks about more, more than that? Nope. Nope. If Jesus is a king, the kingdom of God, he talks about 200 times. It's really interesting, isn't it? Like, I wasn't trying to make anybody feel bad, but it's really interesting. Our Christian imagination, it's so interesting that we talk about the church all the time. We talk about hell and heaven all the time. Jesus didn't hardly talk about those things, but he talked about the kingdom of God all the time. And we hardly ever do. It's really interesting. Um, and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of God, which is really important for us when we're going to look at the Old Testament. Kingdom. So, what I want to signal here is that, is that this is the image of goodness. Okay? For the earliest Christians, Jesus was the measure of all goodness. So, um, John, the, the, John, the writer of the first, second, third John, he said, we have seen and touched God. Um, Jesus says, you know, I only do what the Father says, and I and the Father are one, and I will give you my spirit, and then you will be able to do and say the things, and he, my spirit will remind you of the things that I've said, and the things I say, I only say what the Father says, and there's this really strong identification that the shorthand is Jesus is God, okay? And the earliest Christians, when they were, when they were telling their stories about Jesus. They weren't telling their story about just this kind of good guy who said, oh, I've got some good ideas. Wouldn't it be crazy if we all followed them and, and tried it out? The, the story that they tell of Jesus is the story of, of, of a king, and they use king language a lot, but even more than that, the story that they're trying to tell in the Gospels, you know how when Jesus uses his I am language, it really upsets people. 
obviously. Why is that? When Jesus says, I am, what is he saying? Which is the name of God. I am is the name of God, right? And it's more than just a few things that Jesus says. Jesus takes on the the characteristics of the creator in the Gospels. And this is where we, we are starting to talk about the Old Testament now, by the way. Because Jesus is identified not just as a good teacher, but as, as the word and voice and spirit of God, who was present at the beginning, present at, at the beginning of creation. So you have, for example, um, you think of the Gospels, you think of John's Gospel really famously says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Like John makes it really obvious. Okay, he doesn't hide it at all. Nothing has been made except that it's been made through the word, who is Jesus, right? But all the other gospels also do it. So Mark has, in the beginning, Mark starts, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus, God's anointed. And even that little phrase, in the beginning, is a little signal to remind you of Genesis 1. What happens in Genesis 1, 1 to 2? In the beginning, what happened? Do you remember? In the beginning, the spirit is hovering God's breath. We're going to talk about Ruach. The guy I have, my friend is coming in two weeks' time. He did his whole PhD on Ruach, the spirit of God. God's spirit is hovering over the formless void, over chaos, in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, Right? And the creation story is him, his breath bringing life, bringing order out of chaos. And then later on, what does he do with his breath? In Genesis, he breathes into the mud and creates Adam, which means human, right? And now Jesus comes along. And Jesus is doing things. So all of those healing stories, you know those bits where Jesus spits in the, in the ground and he put, and he put mud on people's face? You know that part in John? Do you remember where he's in the upper room? He's just been crucified. He comes back. It's Easter. He comes back to the upper room. What does he do? They're in their room, right? They're scared because for fear of the Jews, for fear of the authorities that are going to kill them and have already killed them. He then says to them, what does he say? Greetings, peace on you, he says, yeah? Greetings, peace I give you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. Well, who put the, who put the, the holes in his hands and his side? The Romans, right? The cross did. So they're sh- they're, they're, he says in, in, in John 20, they're, they're huddling for fear of the Jews, and he says, peace on you. And then he says he shows them his hands and his side, which is the Romans, and he says, peace on you. So he's given peace on fear of the Jews and peace and fear of the Romans. And then what's the very next thing he does? He breathes on them and says, receive my spirit, right? And then interestingly, what's, what's the very next thing that happens after that, do you know? No, there's, <laughs> he does actually, but right before that, he breathes on them, he says, receive my Holy Spirit. And then he says, forgive. Whoever you forgive will be forgiven really interesting the very first ever charismatic this is a crazy charismatic church right you know you believe in words of knowledge and speaking in tongues and healing and 
But how many of us practice the very first charismatic gift, which is forgiveness? But these are stories here which are showing Jesus as not just a clever guy, but as the, as the Holy Spirit, as the creator, the recreator. He breathes in people and gives them new life. He reforms people around him. He takes old structures and he makes them all about him now. So we talked about Passover. And, we talked to, and in this questions here, we talked about the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Passover. He takes, he always does this in the Gospels. He takes a, a well-known um, religious practice or political practice or, you know, tradition. And Jesus doesn't say the Passover is evil and must be destroyed, okay? He doesn't say that. What does Passover represent if you are a good Israelite? What's the, what is the celebration of Passover? What's it meant to celebrate so God rescues the chosen people from captivity yeah from the evil ruling empire and then Jesus comes and and it's Passover and he shares the meal with them and then what does he say though he says things like this is my body drink my blood he takes the elements that were well, well known to symbolize being rescued from bondage and he says hey I love this stuff. I'm not saying this is evil and must be destroyed, but I am saying it's all about me now. Like, every time he does this kind of stuff, he's making a really strong statement about what kind of person he is. Because he's reforming human identity. He's reforming these things around him. He does, I'll get to you in a second, but he does that with the temple as well. So every time Jesus heals somebody, which we talked about here, every time he heals somebody, um, the temple was where you were supposed to go to get healed. It was the temple that would declare that you were pure, right? So everybody was like, well, the only reason you're ill or sick is because somebody sinned in your family or you sinned. So you need to go to the temple and do the sacrifices to be made pure. And once you've been made declared pure, then you'll be declared clean or healed or the healing will start and you can be reintegrated back into society, right? So healing was a very political act because if you were seen to be unhealed, then you were also not really allowed to be part of society again. So to be declared clean or well was the same as being declared back kosher, being part of, part of the group again, right? And what Jesus does is he goes around and heals everybody and declares them clean. And that's why he gets in so much trouble, right? Who are you to declare people clean? Nobody can declare except God himself. And it has to happen in the temple. And Jesus is forever doing it. And he's not saying healing and forgiveness is, is old and Old Testament and that we don't need it anymore. What he's saying is healing and forgiveness is great. It's just that it happens around me now, Right? And what is more, he then tells his disciples, now that you have my spirit, now you can forgive others as well, right? And, and, and it's it, it reframing what was really important. So this is some of the, the aspect, when you, have, when you have Jesus front and center in your mind, the way the, the way that our New Testament talks about Jesus when it comes to the law, to the Old Testament, is well, in John 1.18, John says, no one has seen God except Jesus has made him known, okay? Well, think, 
just think how many people in the Old Testament have seen God? We talked about it. Moses sees his face or his back. Joshua sits in the tent of meeting and sees God. Uh, Daniel sees God. Jacob sees God. The 72 elders see God. There's a lot of people in the Old Testament who we're told have seen God. Abraham sees God. And John, who's no Old Testament idiot, says, no one has seen God except Jesus has made him known. They really raise the bar. And the way the New Testament treats the Old Testament is not saying the Old Testament is stupid and rubbish and we don't need it anymore. It is not that at all. But it is a pretty big change that it makes. It does to the Old Testament what Jesus did to the Passover or to the temple. It says, it's all about me now, right? Which is very offensive to hear. So I'm not saying that the earliest Christian use of the Old Testament was totally uncontroversial and didn't cause any offense. It totally caused offense. But the offense that it caused was because they were saying, oh, these scriptures are actually about Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't just some good teacher who had some clever new ideas. Jesus was actually present at the beginning of everything. And so when we hear God speak in the Old Testament, we're hearing Jesus speak. And, and then I'm going to, there was a really good question about, does Jesus' sacrifice apply to people in the Old Testament? And do you know, the early church fathers, including the, the early church fathers, had that question, and their answer was, there is no time when people didn't know Jesus because he was present at the beginning of everything. And they identified Jesus's, they might not have known the name of Jesus, but they heard him and they were aware of him. And you look at like the Gospel of John. So one of the things that is always happening is people are always coming to Jesus and saying, what about Moses? Moses told us to do this and this. And Jesus basically says, Moses, let me tell you about Moses. I was there. Um, let me tell you how the law was meant to be, or let me tell you what the real meaning of it was. Let me, let me give you the proper fulfillment of the law that Moses had, right? Or people will come to him about Abraham. Whenever they talk about Abraham, they're basically trying to ask about like, what is your lineage? Are you an authentic in the line of, are you a child of Abraham, right? And Jesus will be like, Abraham, let me tell you about Abraham. He laughed, I was there, and he laughed when he saw me. And there's a story, isn't there, when Abraham hosts three angels, right? In a lot of our um, art, we call them angels, but the, the story is actually that they were kind of sons of God. The, the, the language is very divine. And Christians right away latch into that story, and they're like, oh, wow, look. There's Abraham being visited by the Trinity. <laughs> and the earliest Christians sort of found the Trinity inside these stories. And one of the fun things there is that Abraham laughs when, he's, when he meets them, right? And in John, Jesus is like, yeah, Abraham laughed when he met me. <laughs> and what they're doing is they're trying to tell you that Jesus is, is allowed to comment on the meaning of the stories and the laws and the stuff in the Old Testament because he was there. 
Um, and this is part of the, what it means when we say we're, we're that you, you read the Old Testament through a Christ lens, through a lens of Jesus. And there's some pretty, you know, some things happen. So, I mean, I feel like I want to answer some of your questions, but I also want to do a bit more of the um, setting up the framing. So let's just remember, Jesus was seen as a creator. His, his association with the Holy Spirit is seen as a creator spirit. He's seen as a king, which is all part of that story in the Old Testament. You know that, I, I know that you did it, right? You talked about the God story. You know that kings are very ambiguous in the Old Testament, right? Like the very beginning, the, the, when Israel wanted a king, it's not seen as a good thing. It's seen as a rejection of they did have the word of the Lord, but they rejected it and they wanted to be like other nations. And there's a story running through the Old Testament of people trying to become and look like other nations around them. And so this is interesting. Why did God choose Israel? It's not because Israel was so great. The story of Israel is the story of constantly rebelling and idolatry and like you know we talk about idolatry and us moderns now we think that that means oh I love my iPad more than God or right we, we kind of have a little bit of a idolatry is whatever it is that you you love more I love chocolate it during Lent I don't want to give it up it must chocolate must be my idol right we use that kind of language sometimes but the idolatry language in the Old Testament I mean did you know that like Israelites were sacrificing their children to Molech. Like, after they'd been chosen by God and were calling themselves chosen people, they were still practicing child sacrifice. Which relates, by the way, to hell. Huh, see? Do you know that Jesus never actually uses the word hell either? Who asked the hell question? A really good question, by the way. So, do you know that Jesus never actually uses the word hell either? Right? That's an English word. Jesus talks about the, uh, the, the Vale of Gehenna or the, the Valley of Gehenna, which was a, a rubbish tip that was burning all the time. Well, do you know that the Vale of Gehenna, back in Old Testament days, it's a physical place, you can go to it. Do you know that that's where the Israelites sacrificed their babies? The Vale of Gehenna was where Molech was worshiped. So when Jesus is then talking about, make sure you don't become like the kind of person who's going to be cast off into the veil of Gehenna, it's loaded with that kind of symbolism of you know, child sacrificing devil worship, right? It's, it's a really kind of a big deal and it has to do with, and Jesus, by the way, whenever he talks about that kind of language, the eternal punishment language, he's always talking to people who already claim to be his followers, he never uses that language against Gentiles or non-believers. So he does use that language. I'm not saying he doesn't use it, but he also uses it only to people who already claim to be his followers. And there's something in that language where he's, he talks about, don't be like a tree that's fruitless and it gets cut down. Don't be like salt that loses its saltiness and it gets thrown out. And then don't be like people who need to be thrown into the valley of eternal rubbish burning. And the, the, the constant theme there is of, of being discarded and useless. 
and outside of the kingdom. Like, and it's a, once you've seen, once you're part of the movement of the kingdom of God, once you've seen the Holy Spirit work in his new creative ways, don't reject the Holy Spirit, which is the blasphemy, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit language, and become worthless and discarded, right? But the, it's interesting that the language he uses is very much this kind of, has to do with sort of building on Israel's own past, that Israel was not chosen because it was so great. We're always meant to kind of see that Israel is chosen because God chose them. And you get the stories, you know, about the prostitute, the man who's been told to marry a prostitute, Hosea, told to marry a prostitute, and he, she keeps running off, and he keeps staying faithful to her, and, you know, this, this is what God is like with his people. And, and then you get, in the New Testament, you have Jesus chooses the 12 disciples, the 12 disciples are very intentionally meant to be the 12 tribes, right? A representation of the 12 tribes. Does Jesus choose the 12 disciples because they're so clever and brave? No. Do you know that in the New Testament, almost without exception, whenever a disciple is mentioned, they're usually mentioned as an example of how not to be a disciple. And, and, and there's a kind of a comment there on, on Israel. Jesus is like, yeah, chosen people, love that language. It just doesn't look like what you think it looks like. It doesn't look like moral purity and righteousness and marching onwards onto victory and kicking all the foreigners out. He's like, purity looks like eating with sinners and tax collectors and being with prostitutes and, and, and being with foreigners and allowing and healing their daughters and stuff, right? That's what purity looks like. Being a chosen person is great. But I'm not choosing you because you're really good. I'm choosing you the same way God chose Israel because Israel was rubbish. And God is like, I have, I have mercy on you. I'm going to bring you up. I'm going to, you know, and so there's this kind of idea that, that it's not because, that being a chosen person is not, and it changes in the New Testament as well, that God can raise even these stones, Abraham, sons of Abraham, he can make, even stones can become sons of Abraham. And Jesus, they say, oh, your mother and brothers are outside waiting for you. And he says, my mother and brothers? Who are my mother and brothers? They're the people here who are doing my will. They're my mother and brothers. And he reframes. He doesn't say mothers and brothers are a bad thing. But he does say family is, looks different now because it's being around me. Being, a cho being, being part of the people of God looks different than what you thought it looked like. So I, I can talk with you about hell later. I don't want to get too far into it, but I think it's not actually prevalent, even in the New Testament. Um, the, the Old Testament uses words like Sheol, which means just the place of the dead. The New Testament talks about Hades, which is, again, the place of the dead. Hades is not a place of punishment. It's a place of the dead. So it's interesting when Jesus says, Peter, on this church, I'm going to build on you, I'm going, on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He's not saying the gates of hell. He's saying the gates of, the, of death will not prevail against what I'm doing with you. Uh, and that's really important. And, and um, uh, the Old Testament imagination, hell was not a, eternal punishment wasn't really, didn't figure very large. And in fact, it didn't figure very large in the New Testament imagination either. So Jesus talks about some kind of being discarded or being sent out into the cold and dark. By the way, being sent out into the cold and dark 
and being sent to a lake of eternal fire are two conflicting images. So either they're both literally true, or they can't both be literally true. But Jesus talks about different ways of talking about being kind of, watch out that you don't be sent out. But it's interesting that the, the, we, we have all the records of the New Testament sermons. So the book of Acts and Paul's letters, we've got lots of evidence of how the early church preached and talked. They never mention hell once. Um, and in fact, Paul goes to like the middle of the Acropolis where there's all the idols and he goes into the temple with all the idols. And this would be the perfect time to say, you're all idol worshipers, you're all going to hell. And what does he say? He says, look at that great statue. You don't have a name for it. Let me tell you the name of that statue. He adopts their pagan practice and he puts a Christian meaning onto their pagan practice. It's in Acts. And he goes in, he's, he's in uh, he goes into the great um, idol temple of Rome, the Roman idolatry. And instead of saying, you're all evil and going to hell and you're impure, he marches straight in and he compliments them. And then he says, let me tell you about the God that makes it rain on the just and the unjust, right? Which is what Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount. So... I, the story of why Christians have got fixated on eternal punishment is a story of church history. And it doesn't actually figure as large in the New Testament or Old Testament imaginations as it does in church history. So we can talk about that later, but. But what we need to know about the Old Testament, so if we say Jesus is the lens, how do we read the Old Testament? The New Testament, did you talk about this in the last few weeks, that there's more than one voice in the Old Testament? So there's, the Old Testament is not one book, well, none, neither, neither the New Testament. They didn't fall from the sky fully formed, punk, fall out of heaven and just land thump on the ground. The Old Testament is a collection of many different stories and voices and types of books collected over thousands of years, spanning a whole range of different sort of points of view. And there are, the, the holy scriptures that we have contain within them conversation. You might even say argument with each other. It's a conversation we're looking at here. It's not one voice. Part of the, what makes it holy is the conversation. Think how Abraham, I mean, if anybody's spent time around, has anyone here actually spent time around like looking at Jewish culture or, or talking to a rabbi or reading Jewish literature? There's quite a high value. So I think Christians, we kind of are, sometimes can get shocked. If you go and look at the way a lot of Jewish people talk to God, they, they argue with God. They have a kind of a lively debate with God. And then you remember, well, Abraham did that, didn't he? God says, I want to do this. And Abraham's like, no, no, no. What if I can find 50 good people? Okay, fine. What if I could find 30 good people? Okay, fine. And he has an argument. And he wins the argument. God allows Abraham to win the argument, right? We get this. Jacob wrestles with God. Like we, there's this idea that there's a lively conversation going on, right? And that, the whole Old Testament itself is part of that. And some of the lively conversation, we identify two different 
well, three different strands, really. There's a priest, priestly strand, a kingly strand, and a prophetic. And there's different voices. And if you think about it, the priests and the kings are often the ones who are kind of setting down the laws. They've established the temple. They've established the traditions and the institutions. And they've kind of got it made. And a lot of their texts, you think of kings or chronicles, a lot of their texts are, that come out of those cultures, those Jewish cultures, are, are kind of how to maintain order, how to, to, how to take care of your slaves. Who had the story, a question about slaves? You know, how to manage, how to act like a, a nation. How do we deal with all these kind of stuff? How do we do our sacrifices? How do we deal with slaves? How do we kill our enemies? How do we collect taxes? What do we do about mildew? How do we do, all the, how do, we do what it takes to run, a, to run a nation, right? Well, there's another whole very important voice that one finds in the Old Testament, which is the prophetic. Think of all the prophets. Think of Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Jonah, right? the ones who basically always are speaking truth to power. Notice how many times it's the prophets are going to the kings and the priests saying, you think you've got it all sorted, but the Lord says to you, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for example. Right? In our Old Testament, we have really strong like decrees about how to do sacrifice, and we also have really strong voices saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And you've got all, you've, you've gone carried away with all this stuff and you're forgetting the most important things, which is to take care of the, the foreigners amongst you and the people amongst you and all this kind of stuff, right? And those are two voices in our Old Testament. So if you only look at one and ignore the other, you're not actually dealing with respect to your text that you've got, okay? Well, then you look at what Jesus does and time and again, Jesus affirms the prophet voice. So all of the people that Jesus aligns himself with, he quotes the Old Testament all the time. There is not a single page in the New Testament that does not have some comment somewhere on the Hebrew scriptures, okay? It's absolutely integral to us, to our New Testament. But what we do, what the earliest Christians did and the church fathers, they're like, oh, we need to affirm what Jesus affirmed. And we need to treat lightly or not worry about the things he didn't affirm. Right? And he affirms a lot of things. So uh, some examples are like, well, I, 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 the, uh, in, in Mark 12, you know, a, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and, and he asks Jesus, what's the most important law? And or, Actually, the, the, the teacher of the law says, most important law is that you love God with all your strength um, and that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the, he quotes Hosea 6. Hosea is one of these prophets. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near you. He affirms, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, right? And the Christians identified this phrase with Jesus really early on. Um, Jesus quotes from, right, he begins his ministry where he, he unrolls the scroll, right? Do you remember? I have come to set the captives free from Isaiah. And it's a scroll all about treating foreigners as God's people. It's all about bringing foreigners into the fold. Um, Jesus 
goes and he goes to the temple and he, we talked about the temple tantrum and he clears the temple. What was his cry when he cleared the temple? Right? This house we call the house of prayer, you missed out one very important line. For all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In the, in the temple that Jesus knew, Remember, Passover was the celebration of the chosen people being rescued from the evil ruling empire, right? Well, it was, they were celebrating being rescued from the Egyptian evil empire, but by the time Jesus is walking around, of course, it's now the Romans, and the Romans are there. They have, they're running the show, and now it's Passover. And you can imagine, Passover is not some private religious ceremony now. This is a highly political holiday because it celebrates we remember when we were free, right? And every Passover, the Romans would come out in force. And in fact, they had a garrison they stationed in the temple because they knew that every time Passover came around, that was when all the freedom fighters and brave hearts and you know, nationalists wanted to kick the foreigners out of the temple to make it pure again. And Jesus comes and he's got all his followers with him and they're all crying, King da- here comes King David, right? Old Testament, they're re- relating him to the king, King David, here comes our fabled folk hero in our greatest time of need and he's gonna kick all the foreigners out. And Jesus comes and he storms into the temple and his cry is, let the foreigners in. And the people being robbed, by the way, is not, this isn't, um, Jesus' protest was not mixing business with religion. That's not what was going on here. It wasn't even that the temple was robbing the people. It wasn't even that they so much, there was a bit of that, but it wasn't even so much that they were extorting the people. The person being robbed is actually God. God is being robbed of his followers, of his people, because they weren't letting the Gentiles in, right? So Jesus is, he's always affirming those parts of the Old Testament which are about the prophets saying to the smug centers of power, you think you've got it all sorted and you're proud of your purity, but the Lord says to you, you've forgotten the poor and the oppressed, right? And Jesus affirms that. I'm a really classic one. Do you know how long the book of Jonah is? Physically speaking, do you know how long the book of Jonah is? How many pages do you think it is? So Jean-Luc thinks six to eight, lower. It's like two, two and a half. It's a really short little book. Jesus mentions it a lot. He's always talking about the sign of Jonah and he likens himself to Jonah. Now we very quickly think, oh, that must mean, because we think of Jonah, we think of the fish, right? He's buried and three days later he rises again. Of course, that is of course, that is one of it. But what, you know that the fish story is not the end of Jonah, right? What happens to Jonah? Why, why is Jonah swallowed by a fish? He wouldn't go to Nineveh. The Ninevites were the evil ruling empire of the day. They, were, they used to skin people alive and leave them for ants to eat them. They were evil. And in fact, the Ninevites were the dominating empire. They dominated when Jonah was written. That Jonah was being written by Jews living under Ninevite occupation at the time. 
The Ninevite occupation was so complete that Jesus spoke their language. Aramaic was the language opposed on the Jews by the Ninevites. And Jesus spoke their language generations later. This is how strong this was. And they were the absolute like enemies of the Jewish people. And here they have a story which is preserved in our Old Testament text of Jonah being told to go to the Ninevites and preach what? Repentance. And why doesn't Jonah want to go? He's, he's scared of them, but then what, what are we told in the book of Jonah? So what happens? He goes to Nineveh. He finally goes to Nineveh. He preaches repentance. It's, it's in one sentence. He's like, and he went and he preached, preached repentance. And they all repent, right? And then what happens? So what does Jonah do? He's upset. And, and he goes into, a, throws his toys out of a pram, and he goes and he sits under a, under a tree, and he's like, I'm so mad I could die. And, he, and what does he say to God? Do you remember? He says, I told you, I knew you'd do this because you're a kind God and you show mercy on your enemies. And God says, why shouldn't I show mercy on my enemies? They don't know what they're doing. And there's lots of them and they have lots of cows. The end. The last line is they have lots of cows and it stops. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm the sign of Jonah. You know, think of all of our texts in the Old Testament about killing enemies and dashing babies' heads on the rocks and all that. Think of all those texts, right? Jesus does not identify with any of them. He does, however, affirm Hosea, Jonah, Isaiah. He affirms those guys. And it's, so that's really worth paying attention to. Look, it's not going to solve our problems about all those texts in the Old Testament. But the earliest Christians, the way they dealt with some of those, they were like, well, did Jesus affirm those things or not? I mean, another good example is, is uh, if we had time, I'd make you do the exercise. But in 1 Kings, you know, there's a famous story where Elijah goes to a village, right? And he, he's, he's prophesying and they reject him. Do you remember what he does? The, the, the pagan, the Samar- there are like a Samaritan cr- crowd. He calls down fire. So they reject him and he calls down fire on the village, right? Now shoot ahead to Luke. And we got James and John, who are the sons of thunder, right? And another way of describing thunder is the sons of anger, by the way. James and John, two disciples. Remember, disciples are almost never examples of how to be a disciple. James and John are with Jesus and the Samaritans reject them. And what did James and John say? Shall we call down fire? And then some of our translations say, as in the days of Elijah. And what does Jesus do? He says, no. I'm not, that's not what I'm about. He directly does not affirm. Elijah is a hero in the Old Testament. That story is presented as a heroic thing. Jesus does not affirm it. Okay? I am aware this raises problems. Like I'm aware this isn't just this smooth reading of the Old Testament. But what I'm saying is the earliest, there isn't a smooth reading. There's a Jesus reading and then there's, there's others. And the earliest Christians in the New Testament is like, we, this Old Testament is our text, it's our holy scripture and the holiness that it preserves. All scripture is useful for teaching and correcting. That does not mean 
everything in the Old Testament is 100% exactly what we should be doing because Jesus does not affirm a lot of it. That, book, that story of Elijah is useful for teaching and correcting because it's useful because Jesus said, I don't do that. So it's useful, you know? So I hope you hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying, oh, what a waste of time. But I am saying like, wow, when you, when, you, when you let Jesus take you by the hand and lead you into the Old Testament, and when you find that Jesus says, oh, I was there, let me tell you how it's meant to be. It's meant to lead to the love of your, I mean, a really good example is in Leviticus, got a few minutes. In, um, in Leviticus 24, or in Leviticus 19, actually. This is a good one. In Leviticus 19, if you were to look it up, uh, 15 to 18. Have a look at Leviticus 19, 15 to 18. Leviticus 19, 15 to 18. Okay, uh, it's, verse, it's verse 17 to 18, actually, I'm looking at. Leviticus 19, 17 to 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right? Great. We all love that, right? Now have a look at Luke 10. All right, so remember, Leviticus, which is saying the neighbor is somebody who's a son of Israel. And then you get to Luke 10, of course, which is the famous story about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the man comes to Jesus and he says, what's the law? And Jesus says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting Leviticus 19. And then the man is like, oh yeah, but who's my neighbor? In Leviticus, the neighbor, if you go back to it, it's explicitly identified as a son of Israel, right? Your neighbor is your fellow, the person who looks like you and sounds like you, basically. What does Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan do? Who's a Samaritan? Yeah, a hated foreigner. Samaritan, we talk about purity. Samaritans were the ones, if you walked through their village, just walking through their village made you impure. The, you know, the, the Israelites hated the Samaritans violently. They were the enemy. And here Jesus tells a story in which he totally affirms, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, oh, and your neighbor does not look like what you thought it looked like. And he puts his stamp on this text, which is a holy text, but he has like, redefine what a neighbor is, right? And this is the kind of thing that Jesus does all the time. And it's not as easy as saying, now that we have the New Testament, we don't need the Old Testament. That's not what he's saying. But it also, if you are just reading the Old Testament, you're missing something very Christocentric. We need to affirm what he affirmed and not affirm what he didn't affirm. And, and, and I'll end with this, but that the cross... You know, Jesus' presence, it, 
some things from the past pass through the cross unchanged. Some things pass through the cross changed. And some things stop at the cross and don't come through at all. And we have to be responsible with that, right? And slavery is one of them, which we don't have time to talk about. I, I, I left it on purpose because it's such a, an obviously big deal. That slavery is one of those ones where we start to see movement. And by the time you get to the New Testament, they are not openly rejecting slavery, but they're starting to change it to such a degree that it stops being powerful in a way that's very similar. So, so in the Old Testament, you've got this idea that foreigners can be held as slaves, okay? And there doesn't seem to be any moral problem with that. And then there is some stuff where Jesus is like, or God is like, be kind to the foreigner amongst you and that kind of thing. And then you get to the New Testament and all of a sudden you have people like Philemon, who uh, in the book of Philemon, where, where Philemon was a, uh, was, was a, a slave owner and, and, and his slave had run away. And Paul says, I found him, he's a friend of mine, he's, a, he's my brother. I want you to accept him back into your household, right? And it's a little bit similar to like what Jesus does with the neighbor here, is Paul never says, oh, Onesimus is no longer your slave. He says, oh, he's your slave, treat him like a brother. And it's really similar to Jesus kind of saying, love your neighbor, oh, and your neighbor doesn't look like your fellow Israelite anymore, it looks like your enemy, right? And it, just by redefining it, it undermines it. And it's that kind of, there's a story there of slavery being undermined, the power of slavery being taken away. And um, why they weren't rising up in armed aggression against slavery is a, is a different story. For one thing, they weren't able to do it. So the early Christians were a, a little minority group. They didn't have their fingers on the buttons of power or anything like that. So what they were doing is they were undermining, they weren't practicing slavery, even though the outward form of it looked similar. There was, it's really interesting in the early church, you know that martyrdom wasn't, we all know that early Christians were martyred, right? But it wasn't that every Christian everywhere was taken up and martyred. What the government did is they would only choose people who were seen to be like the figureheads of that, of the group the public presence, the, the, the obvious kind of public Christian was the one who was swept up and taken into custody and, and made a martyr. And with that in mind, we need to pay attention to how many martyrs are women slaves in the early church. That the early church was giving it women slaves the positions of the most public presence in their church. When Rome looked at the church, they went, oh, that, she's the one we got to get. It's really significant that there's a kind of a, the whole like power of, power dynamic of owner and slave and all that is, was being undermined and changed by the Christians. Even if the, technically the, the systems seemed to look the same, what the Christians were doing was they were totally undermining it and they were you know, like slaves were serving communion to their masters and masters were serving communion to their slaves and that, that kind of thing. And it was, it was upsetting to the people around them. And it's, that's part of the story which led eventually to the abolition of slavery thousands of years later. And it was always Christians, like even the earliest Christians, the early church fathers were against slavery, following the trajectory that they found in the scriptures, which is part of what we were talking about. Like sometimes even if the scripture doesn't 
immediately say no to something, the early church was able to notice a trajectory of, oh, it seems that things are changing. Um, the role of women is another one. It seems that the way Jesus treated women means women are definitely not. The way that he affirmed and gave a voice and made public presence of all of these women in his sphere means that whatever it is that, however it is the Christians treat women, we can't just treat women like everybody around us does, right? Even though there's no like specific teaching, which Jesus doesn't specifically say, and you must have women, you know, leaders in your church. He doesn't say that, but he just effectively does have women leaders in his church. And that's what undermines the rule of law. So anyway, um, I feel like it's definitely nine. You've definitely been here for a long time. But uh, yeah, that's what we're going to do um, next week. We're going to look more at these specific ones. But I just wanted to have that real framework in mind that we don't go into any of these without holding Jesus' hand. That we think the cross sometimes changes some things, sometimes affirms some things, and sometimes stops them altogether. And we are being responsible readers of our Old Testament, not irresponsible when we admit that. And uh, that Jesus, I love this question, does Jesus' sacrifice apply to the Old Testament? Absolutely. He was present at the beginning of the creation of the world. His Holy Spirit, it was Jesus' Holy Spirit that's hovering over the chaos. And then that's his spirit that he breathes in us. So when you're a crazy charismatic, you are not leaving the Old Testament behind. You're going right back to Genesis 1. And you're like, that's the spirit that lives in me. And Paul said, that's the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the spirit that the gates of death cannot hold against, right? So I, I affirm the Old Testament to you. Should we stop there? Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Um, we're going to carry on in two weeks' time, is that right? So Wednesday in two weeks' time, if you've got time to come, um, we're going to continue this conversation. And I think um, with uh, the help of um, some invited guests, we'll be able to look more specifically at some of the questions that have already come up. But you've, you've, it's been incredibly illuminating to have that framework um, sort of explained to us this evening. So thank you so much for that. Um, we're going to end just with a moment of prayer. I think we've had a lot of things that have been swirling around this evening and let's just take a moment of silence just to um, ask the Lord to, to, to sort of write on our hearts though, that, that, those one or two things that we want to be able to take away and meditate on and it may be before, before leaving this evening you want to just look again at the, the piece of paper where you wrote out your question and think about, you know, how, how has tonight helped you with that question? Has it, has it reinforced the question? Is the question perhaps no longer as important as it seemed? Has it brought up other questions? But most of all, how does that relate to Jesus? And how does Jesus illuminate it?
I'd like to conclude by reading a couple of verses from Paul where he does what Jesus did, which is to, to re, um, redefine the Old Testament traditions. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Father, we thank you for your extraordinary patience and love with your people, for the way in which you, as we see in, in the Old Testament, you constantly came and drew them back to you. Thank you that you didn't choose them because of any merit on their part, but simply because you loved them and wanted to redeem them and use them. And we thank you, Lord, that that is true of us. And we thank you for this reminder tonight that you, uh, Lord, were constantly working and are still constantly working, drawing people to yourself, those who do not resemble us, those who are outcasts or rejected by others. Lord, we ask that as we, as Christ followers, try to grapple with um, your word, grapple with the scriptures, that you would renew our minds, not just so that we can understand, but so that we can be like Christ. Lord, we ask you to give us grace to be prophetic as Christ was prophetic, uh, to challenge power and speak truth and love to power as Christ did. Uh, we pray that you would fill us with his spirit, that we too might be anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, the year of the Lord's favour. Lord, may we also be signs of Jonah to this generation. We pray, Lord, that you would enlarge our understanding of these things, deepen our knowledge, uh, but so that our hearts may be set on fire with love for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. We'd really, really appreciate feedback. And so uh, if you feel you know, frustrated this evening because a question hasn't been addressed or you, you've got things that are burning on your heart and you'd love to just say them, please come. I'm sure Stephen would, would re you know, remain around for a couple of minutes just to engage with you. But, but also, if you've got things that, are, you know, that have come up in your mind, um, write them down on a bit of paper even tonight and either give them to us or take the piece of paper with you and bring it back in a couple of weeks' time because we will have another session where we can um, go further with the more specific things. But thank you. That's the end of our evening. Uh, have a great night and uh, we'll see you again soon.